You're listening to Inspirational Decency, episode 478, Muckler's Quandary. And now, the opening and closing pages of my memoir. On the day I was born, God smiled the most benevolent smile imaginable. God, it should be noted, was the nickname for Gus Godfrey Shaz, the disgraced former police officer who stood watching through the taxi window as my mother gave birth to me in the back seat. He loomed over us, hungrily gnawing at the breaded pogo on a stick he'd purchased at the Max, and shouting, Fresh meat for the furnace! Fresh meat for the furnace! What I couldn't have known at that moment was that Gus Shaz, the disturbed man without a heart of gold, would one day become my prime benefactor. If by benefactor you mean man who sent me monthly payments to keep me from revealing what he does with his collection of expired cat medicine. In any case, I knew from the day I was born that I was destined for greatness. I just didn't know where or how this greatness would show itself. How would I bend the world to my will? How would I establish control over the flow of events? As it happens, the nature of my brilliance would reveal itself at the age of eight, when I wrote a one-act play about my chocoholic stepfather, entitled Almond Joy, Almond Misery. Few will ever forget the stepfather character's final monologue, in which he lays bare his demons and achieves a true catharsis. You don't, you don't know me. None of you know what it's like to have the demon chocolate crying out your name in the midnight ether. And every kind of chocolate bar has its own personality, its own distinct flavor of venality and contempt. Arrow bars with your milk chocolatey bubbles of malevolent decadence. You spite me with your refusal to hold to your textural boundaries. For you know full well that I lack your freedom and am hemmed in by the barbed wire of my agony. And Kit Kat, you taunt me mercilessly by speaking in the voices of those I have wronged in my interminable path through existence. Oh, that they might exact their final vengeance at long last, so that I may experience the sweetness of release. And Coffee Crisp, stop making fun of my haircut. I asked for a flock of seagulls, but the barber heard me say, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. That's why I look like a seagull. Along with the fact that I'm covered in white feathers, which, well, that's another story. And that has to do with me being run out of Telluride, Colorado. The play was a smash hit on the elementary school theatrical circuit, winning eight Splinter Desk Drama Awards, including Most Adorable Set Design, Unconvincing Division, and the Tyke Robinson Prize for Partial Achievery. Truly, my road to becoming a celebrated playwright was being paved with the concrete of critical laurels and justified accusations of plagiarism by Susan Laurie Parks. And yet, there was one piece of the puzzle that was still missing. Romance. Eternal companionship was as yet unknown to me, despite what I thought was a very appealing personal ad 
in my local community newspaper, which read, Please get in touch with me. This is very important. Love is on the docket. And I am going to make you break down on the witness stand by cross-examining you with sexual passion. If you love chocolate, stay away from me. I will not shower or perform any other corporate activities. Please send a picture of a dead cow's dusty skull. This led to my first marriage to Olin Spache, a former oil tycoon who made headlines and footlines by donating all of her money to the cause of recriminalizing oranges, a campaign that ended after someone pointed out that oranges have never been illegal. Our union ended after five years when she went to the store for cigarettes and never came back for 20 minutes, at which point I had moved out. I am now married to a woman who answers directly to Jack Layton's mustache. I am also 14 years old, which is kind of weird if you think about it, but you really shouldn't. Thus ends my memoirs, which are apparently only 700 words long, which is fine with me if it's fine with you. The End. wants to talk about his problems without getting too specific. Ugh. I have so many problems. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many problems I got. Problems is my middle name. Have you ever heard that song 99 Problems by rapper and mogul Jay-Z? If I did a version of that song, it would be called 232 Problems. 233 if you count the fact that my dog's talk show on Animal Planet got cancelled. Oh boy, oh boy. So many problems. But here's the thing. I can't get into specifics. Otherwise, I'd have to name names and I don't want to violate anyone's confidence or betray anyone's privacy. So I'll have to tread delicately here. Okay, so here goes. Well, for starters... The beard I grew in that particular area is starting to clump and grow pungent. I would do something about it, but the religion I founded and became a member of forbids the use of clippers because of that incident from 2003 involving Slim Whitman and that jar of blackstrap molasses. Well, let's see, what else? Well, my professional relationship with a certain celebrity sea captain is worse than it's ever been. He never forgave me for writing that article in Esquire, detailing the -the behind-the-scenes turmoil on his reality show, Oh, You Think You're Salty? I made sure to note that a certain producer's accusations of financial impropriety were completely inappropriate, and inspired mainly by jealousy over the fact that the sea captain was invited to play crokinole with Amy Tan, and the producer wasn't. But still, the sea captain in question refuses to answer my text messages, or respond to the desperate, often profane skywriting I have left above the Galapagos Islands. Sea Captain, if you are listening to this, let me just say, I care about your friendship, and would never tell anyone about the army of genetically engineered ogres that tweets on your behalf. Oh, here's another problem I have. Money. 
I just don't have enough of it. I lost a lot of it when I invested in tapeworms. I really thought this was going to be their year. Oh well. Anyway, here is what I have been doing for food. Every day, I raid my grandmother's garden and pick a variety of fresh vegetables. What a haul! Tomatoes, carrots, cauliflower, peas, and the like. I pick enough vegetables to fill a three-pound barrel. Then I drop that barrel on the head of the first person I see leaving the KFC down the street, and I steal their chicken. I suppose I could just push them over or punch them, which would take far less time and energy than the vegetable thing, but I suppose I just enjoy the symbology. For clothing, since my conventional clothes have either ripped embarrassingly or disintegrated, I have devised a series of outfits made from a synthetic fiber called Strawberry Tension that looks like a softer brand of cheesecloth, but feels like a coarser brand of vinyl. My preferred ensemble these days is a large sheet of Strawberry Tension draped like a rain poncho about my torso and shoulders, while atop my head rests a plate covered in a variety of vegan-friendly crepes and panini sandwiches. Where do I get these vegan-friendly crepes and panini sandwiches, given the food situation I described before? Well, that's another problem. I tend to sleepwalk at night, and due to some repressed trauma from my childhood, revolving around an Italian deli and an elderly Satanist, this is the extent of my memory, I tend to break into Italian eateries at night while I am asleep. When will I get caught, you ask? Great question. Maybe that's another problem for another time. Meanwhile, please send me your thoughts, prayers, and crackers. And now, a man struggles to remember the cause of World War I. World War I started when Ferdinand Marcos lost the keys to the Philippines to a 16-year-old pizza delivery boy named Garson. Now, Garson had a heavy metal band called the Wicked Stalodites, and they weren't really going anywhere, mostly because they were not very good. They... I guess their sound was fairly unfocused. Some songs sounded more like progressive metal, and others sounded more like hard rock, and then others sounded maybe more death metal. So in any case, that band was certainly not taking off in any sense of the word. And so he had to do something to kickstart the Wicked Stalodites' career. So he thought, what better way than to take over the country and cause some sort of international incident, maybe? So he stole the keys to the Philippines while Ferdinand Marcos was bending over to pick up an especially rare stone on the side of the highway. And oh, you should have heard him curse as the young boy drove away in his Chevy. He shook his fist so hard you'd think orange juice would issue from his knuckles. 
I don't know what that means. In any case, after the boy stole the keys to the Philippines, he took the massive nuclear warheads that the Philippines had at the time, which I guess wasn't much for 1914, and just started firing them off at Germany and Prussia and Little Prussia, which was a very small neighborhood in Germany somewhere. And those countries were like, wait a minute, what are you up to? You've bombed us, and uh, we'd like to think it was a mistake, but you are a grown man. They, they didn't know. They couldn't see who was actually doing this, right? They assumed it was uh, Ferdinand Marcos. Like, you're a grown man, and we find it hard to believe that you don't know what you're doing, so you obviously want to engage us in war, so let's do this. We're going to engage in war, and we just hope that you are happy with what you're doing and that you've made your peace with Belzar, who was the galactic ruler at the time. People don't know that uh, up until 1929, the entire world was ruled by a galactic ruler from the planet Jink. And so that is how World War I essentially started. So I guess the... Uh, moral, uh, the lesson that historians have tried to take away from this is if you are a pizza delivery boy and you're in a metal band, like, just pick one sound and stick with it. Oh, ladies, gentlemen, what have we learned from this week's episode? Or as I like to call it, Reposode. Because it represents... Represents what? I'm not sure, but, uh, something. In any case, what have we learned indeed from this installment? Well, we've learned that in the man versus bear showdown of life always go for the nose pop you gotta pop life right in the nose show it who's boss and then life will not like you of course but it will come to respect you I should note at this point that I I actually don't think it's a good idea to pop a bear in the nose if you're facing it down. I think if you are faced with a bear, whether camping in the wilderness or in the front row of an Earth, Wind, and Fire concert, the important thing to remember is stay still Do not look it directly in the eye. And maybe refrain from critiquing the purple sash it sports around its neck. 
Now aesthetically it may not be the most pleasing sight, but keep in mind that bears cannot take constructive criticism. It is their greatest fault, and it shall be their undoing in the eternal struggle between bears and humans for picnic basket supremacy. Whereas we humans, if bears were to stop us outside of a supermarket and say, are you guys aware of what you're eating here? You've got a lot of processed food or food that's high in fat here in your shopping cart. I had to think for a second about what the name for a shopping cart was. Because I have really put a lot into this week's episode and I'm just so exhausted as a result. But in any case, if a bear was to stop us outside the supermarket, give us some helpful critiques, we wouldn't just bat it aside and maul it. Like, uh, like impatient primordial jerks. We'd thank them for the input. We would take it under advisement. Uh, We would at least give it due consideration before we either decide to act on on that advice or not. That's the human way. But in the mind of the bear, uh, sensitivity reigns supreme. So I'd like to end this episode by saying, shut up, bears. Good night.